Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Pam Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Um, uh, Sarah, it's the end of the semester. It's the end of the year. Do you have any last day of classes rituals? Do you do you bring donuts? Do you do a sort of like, I don't know, uh, struggle session on the last day of school or anything? I, I don't. I, I usually try to try to you know do some kind of final performance event, whether that's the students or or me, um, uh, or I sort of put something weird in a lecture. But I do not yet have my gimmick for this year, so I'm 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 still I'm still seeking one out, and and you know hopefully it will come to me in the next week and a half because I've got, you know, three more teaching days of this semester. No, no pressure. I think you've got enough on your plate at the moment to, without having to re, without know, having to, to event. I have to give people the transformative experience of their lives. I don't know what oh you're my talking God, no. about. I'm bad about this. I, I do the same thing. Like most classes I teach end with some sort of individual performance project. And I really do not, I don't bring the carbs. I don't, sort of share what we've learned, though I know other professors who do this, and it sounds like it's a really good way to wrap up a class. I, I, and we are joined also by Harvey Young of Boston University. It's Harvey! Harvey! Um, <laughs> Harvey was trying to freak me out by making me think that his audio had shut off, but it had not shut off. He's right there. Harvey, I don't think you've been teaching this semester, but do you enjoy any sort of last day of classes, um, uh, rituals, or ceremonies? No. Are you just like, this is the last, yeah, this is the last reading. I mean, there's just a lot of end of the semester performances, you know, that I attend. So, so last night I saw an end of the semester opera and then tonight I think I'll see an end of the semester play. Uh, It's just one of those things where it's um, the chance for kind of the gang to come back together again uh, for one last hurrah before we part for the summer. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm pretty minimalist on, on these things, though this year, Paige and I are hosting a a like cookout at our house for all the senior majors and the newly declared majors and minors. We're calling it grads and ads, and it's a uh, we're. we're we're basically trying to entice students to join the major and minor by offering them a new department T-shirt with our new logo and come over to the professor's house and have dinner. And and, so and, and when is this? This is tomorrow evening. And, you guys should come out. And what's you your address? Out. Tell everyone. <laughs> no, I will not say my address on the podcast, though. <laughs> it's probably all too easy to find. Um, uh, so, um, yes, well, listeners, here we are. It's episode 32. We've got some exciting topics to talk about. Although, I don't know about Harvey and Sarah. It's that time of year when my brain is pretty much fried. And we've picked three very heady complex topics. I don't know who suggested these topics, but I would like to talk to that person. Um, it's late ap- It's the last day of April, and we're supposed to dive deeply into the concept of form. Um, at any rate, no, we're, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about these topics. We're going to talk about um, the new anthology edited by Shane Boyle, Matt Cornish, and Brandon Wolf called Post-Dramatic Theater and Form. We obtained a copy of the introduction of this very exciting new release on two very interesting topics. Um, we also read Patrick McKelvey's article in the New Theater Journal entitled A Disabled Actor Prepares Stanislavski Disability and Work at the National Theater Workshop of the Handicapped. 
super interesting article. And we're going to round things out today by talking about the uses and abuses of performativity. This is a perennial subject of um, grousing and debate on Twitter, thanks primarily to our colleague Aaron Thomas. Um, What does the word performative mean anymore? And is it a problem that it gets used to mean a lot of different things? Before we get to those topics, we have some news items to round up. Um, ACLS awards, fellowships, were announced um, uh, earlier this month, and a couple of figures in our field were the lucky recipients of them. Joanna D. Doss, my colleague here at Washington University in St. Louis and PAD, um, got an ACLS for her project on on dance in dance culture in Branson, Missouri. Um, and Julia Fawcett of uh, Theater Dance and Performance Studies at Berkeley also received an ACLS. These are super um, uh, prestigious awards, and it's always exciting when people in the field get them. And also among the awards were projects um, that were related to theater and performance, um, kabuki, um, musical theater, uh, disability musical theater, I believe. So go check out the list of those ACLS awards. ACLS uh, being American Council of Learned Societies, if I'm not That mistaken. is correct, yeah. yes, yes. And big congratulations to uh, Professor Doss and Professor Fawcett. Um, Aster working sessions have been announced. They were posted on April 1st. The deadline for those is June 1st. If you want to join a working session and go to Arlington, Virginia for Aster in November, which you should, it's being organized by some fantastic folks. Um, uh, What else is going on? The Tony nominations were announced this morning. And I don't know, I'm not enough of a Broadway head to really have much of a take on the Tony nominee lists, but the New York Times notes that um, Town and the revival of Oklahoma and The Prom did very well with nominations, as did Tootsie, the musical, um, but that the notable snubs were To Kill a Mockingbird and Network. Um, I'm eagerly awaiting commentary from the likes of Brian Herrera to see what other Tony nominees signify this year. Though I also want to say that this is the first year when I've had a, a friend um, nominated for a Tony. Andy Grotolution is nominated for actor in a supporting role for Tootsie. Um, and he's a fantastic actor and a, a really great guy. And I'm super excited to tune in this year and watch it. Guys, maybe we should do a Tony's special on the podcast over the summer. I'm I'm game. Yeah, for sure, sure. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll wear our tuxes. It'll be great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, get the tux out of the out of the attic. Um, and the only other item I had was uh, speaking of Brian Herrera, he put on his theater click hashtag a great piece of criticism by uh, Soraya McDonald about slave play and white noise, the two uh, contemporary plays that we talked about in the last edition of the podcast. Um, that essay was posted or published on theundefeated.com, um, and McDonald makes a case for slave play um, in that piece, which I thought was really interesting. So listeners should go check out, check that out, especially if they enjoyed that segment last edition. Um, if I could oh, just there was, add a couple other things. Um, you yeah. Know, uh, there was also um, last Sunday a uh, cover of the New York Times um, – uh, art section was specifically about black playwrights in this particular mm-hmm. moment. And the week before that, the uh, New York Times uh, T Style magazine um, did uh, an entire issue entirely of um, 
new pl- you know, uh, a new play is basically like set five years from now by um, uh, by a whole range of, of contemporary American playwrights. And apparently, I haven't had a chance to watch them yet, but some of those were have been are also, uh, maybe all of them have been filmed and posted. I think they're somewhere online, someone was telling me. I haven't had a chance. Have you either of you had a chance to, to watch those yet? No, I haven't. I, I have not. Though it reminds me that the Style Magazine, the Style Magazine, the New York Times is now doing some theater coverage. Remember that piece they did about the revivals of Angels and uh, is yeah. it the band plays on? Um, so uh, Corey Sika, who I think is the style editor at New York Times, maybe he is in, putting some... Um, some theater coverage in the in the in the style section, and which well, is this cool. one Although, is like I mean, it's all plays. Like the entire wow. style magazine is is just these short plays, all of which are set in 2024. So um, that's amazing. My 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 students have been reading them and and kind of talking about them and thinking about them, and um, and they're they're great. That's fantastic. We did we that would be a good, um, good podcast worthy yeah, sure. reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, one other one other item. Uh, Rebecca Rugg, our colleague, is now like Sarah Bejung, joining the ranks of administration. She will be the new dean of art, architecture, and design at the University of Illinois Chicago. So, congrats to Rebecca. With those news items covered, let's dive right into our first topic, post-dramatic theater and form, um, a really exciting new anthology edited by Shane Boyle, Matt Cornish, and Brandon Wolf. Um, the, we've only read the introduction, but the contributor list alone is really exciting. Um, there are essays in there by Eleanor Fuchs, Nick Rideout, Magda Romanska, Stanton Garner, Kate Bredesen, other um, really exciting scholars on a very interesting topic, sort of a, I don't know, brushing up our understanding and knowledge of both both the post-dramatic um, and form and formalism. Um, so I'm curious to know what you guys thought. Sarah, what, what was, um, I don't know, do you want to sort of summarize some of the points in here or give us your takes on this anthology? Sure. Well, I mean, I haven't had a chance to uh, to look at the anthology, although like panel, I, I, sh- I share enthusiasm for the contributor list. And, um, you know, I know, I know, uh, uh, Boyle and, and Cornish's other work uh, pretty well. So I, I, I expect that the whole collection will be pretty exciting. The introduction, uh, I think, is really interesting because it, it kind of takes up these, these terms, some of which have been around for a long time, and they you know, kind of trace formalism and objections to formalism back to new criticism and close reading of the 1930s and the politics around that. Um, and the kind of changing uh, field and the ways in which literary study gave rise to theater studies and the question of what makes theater theater versus dramatic literature and, and how those two things sit and two ideas sit in tension sometimes with one another, particularly in the context of, of, of different forms of reading and analysis. So that just as a kind of history is, is, is really uh, interesting. Um, I, I, it, this piece had a kind of special place in my heart because it reminded me actually I, of uh, a, a paper I gave years ago um, in which the, the I, I thought it was kind of an interesting paper and, and I, I thought I had done an okay job with it. And the first response from a very senior person in the field um, who I respect a great deal was, was to say, that's a, that, you know, to sort of sit there quietly and then, and then say um, into the silence, like, that's a surprisingly formalist analysis. <laughs> yeah. and, and I mean, like, one could not have made a, 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 a more derisive comment, I think, in that moment than to, than to be called a formalist. And, and I was like, 
huh, okay. Uh, and so I, it, it, so for me personally, this was kind of a fun um, uh, and really inviting way to rethink, like what are, what are our objections to formalism and how might we think through them in different ways? And what does the notion of, you know, Hans Theis Lehmann's, you know, post-dramatic theater offer us in terms of, of rethinking and renegotiating some of these these core concepts in ways that don't just become a, a, a kind of, you know, a total rejection of, of formalism as being non-ideological and non-historical and non, um, you know, or, or sort of supporting reactionist tendencies, but, but as part of a different way of thinking through the question of drama and theater. So I, I enjoyed this very much and, and, and really recommend it and, and I'm quite excited for the, for the anthology. Harvey, what did you yeah. think about this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. It, in, in a way, I was reminded of a, a, about a conversation uh, that I had years ago with my dissertation advisors who were talking about how every generation, certain uh, sort of intellectual frameworks uh, sort of are under fire or they return. Um, you know, so um, psychoanalysis uh, within performance, formalism, um, you know, the, the, the rise of criticism, new criticism. Uh, and, I, and, and what I think is helpful is that uh, there's a way in which, you know, as you noted, Sarah, you know, what this book seems to do, I've only read the introduction, you know, is to really make a case for the power of formalism, right? And, and one thing I want to pull out here um, and uh, read aloud is, is an excerpt, right? In the author's note, uh, the editor's note, paying attention to matters of form does not mean ignoring how theater can be political. At the same time, however, formalism requires considering how theater engages with the reproduction of social life beyond the specific sphere of politics, right? You know, so... Uh, you, know, you know, formalism can actually do more than uh, what's often discounted as uh, uh, a limitation. Um, you know, so it makes complete sense. And if you've looked at the scholarship of the contributors, you can see that over the last decade, you know, they've been really making a compelling case, uh, you know, for, um, you know, a, a critical and theoretical intervention in terms of how to read, uh, you know, these, these, these various uh, aspects of performance in terms of uh, as being able to engage in a political and um, uh, socially aware way, you know, so this seems to be a logical extension in a sort of field-defining way or redefining way. Panel, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with both of your takes. I think there is this sense of, I mean, you know, Sarah, you bring up the kind of formalism as a, uh, I don't know, pejorative term or a way to be dismissive of comments that are, or analyses that are apolitical or decontextualized, et cetera. I, part of the ex experience that I had with this introduction was realizing my experience with formalism, which was being uh, trained in my PhD research by an avowed formalist, um, who I, I, I hope that I'm not selling Spencer out by saying this, but I, I took him to understand that his formalism, it, A, it had positive qualities. It was about exploring the limits of the art form itself and um, making art that as perhaps its primary impetus um, was to explore the possibilities of that artwork. So that on its in itself to me does not seem to be a you know negative political stance, but I do think that it's also understood as well. I'm not making social commentary. I'm not doing satire. I'm not trying to create a narrative or a set of feelings that um, uh, prompt a critical engagement. There, because I am formalist. So formalism can be an alibi or an accusation that people can make um, on behalf of or against art that feels apolitical or, you know, by virtue of being apolitical is actually reactionary. Um, but to me, I've never, like, I, I don't know, some of my 
my theater taste gravitates towards the formalists. I think of Richard Foreman's work, which is very much sort of, I don't know, focused on the gener- the, what, what is generated by his own mind and on the limitations of theater as a, as a representational machine. Um, but I think that even those artists who are perhaps even self-consciously formalist do have political moments. I'm reminded of a, a later play of Foreman's during the Bush era called King Cowboy Rufus Rules the Universe, which was very much a comment on the George W. Bush administration, um, though all through the sort of Richard Foreman theater machine. So, you know, speaking from my personal reaction with this essay, it is it, it invited me to explore what I think about formalism, and I'm totally ambivalent about it. I kind of love formalist theater, and I love post-dramatic theater, but I'm also sympathetic to the claims that it um, can be navel-gazing, can be solipsistic, can be, you know, removed from the world. Um, I guess it all so, depends on how attractive the navel is that one is gazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's not an attractive navel. <laughs> oh, you never know. I mean, you know, there's... What I what I thought you were about to say, panel, is is that you know some of my favorite. I thought you were gonna like some of my favorite people are formalists, and you know. Yes, um, right, right, yeah. Uh, some of my best friends are formalists. Exactly. And, I mean, and, I will I will say there are a couple of moments in here that made me you know, if I were physically capable of such a thing, raise one eyebrow, and one is the the the, <laughs> the reference to. Um, they're, they're kind of talking about Layman, and it's like artists as disparate as Robert Wilson, the Worcester Group, Sarah Kane, and Renee Polish, and I was like, well. Yeah, I mean, they're not exactly the same, but I'm not sure that I would put them as like, you know, wildly, <laughs> radically different from one another. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, they could not be more yeah. different. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, Robert Wilson <laughs> and Sarah Kate. Like <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I, I am very sympathetic to, um, historical materialists, political convictions and Marxist political convictions and, and art as advocacy, but I also think it's fine if artists want to, explore things that aren't a social commentary um at any rate they 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 unpack these debates and and give a lot of good context um and and harvey in reaction to your um your comment there is an interesting sort of feeling of a generational recycling like we're going back to this book by uh by layman and sort of seeing where the term is seeing what is meant by post-dramatic in, in, in an interesting way i think this will end up connecting to our later segment on performativity but one of the claims that or one of the the arguments that i think eleanor fuchs makes and marvin carlson makes an argument that's quoted in the same way is that there's a promiscuity to the way that post-dramatic theater gets used and that um uh, i think it's fuchs who says that there's a kind of subsumption uh, uh, dynamic where a lot of different artists work, you know, perhaps Robert Wilson and Sarah Kane are two examples, um, though they're not identified, they're identified as being formalistic, not post-dramatic, um, get subsumed in this label and that you're, we might be running the risk of I doing... they are identified as post-dramatic. Is that true? I thought we earlier we were talking about them as being sort of formalist, but um, that's that's a good correction. Thank you, Sarah. Well, I don't um, but that that basically what is happening here is something akin to what um, uh, Martin Esslin did with the Theater of, of the Absurd, just write a very popular book that sort of lumps together Beckett and Ionesco and then make this label for it that then because it's 
you know, it's a compelling book and a compelling argument, all of a sudden everyone thinks there's such a thing as the theater of the absurd. And and Ionesco and Beckett were very different in in the types of work that they were making. Um, they were post-dramatic theater artists in a way. But um, at any rate, there's it, it's good, I think, for them to provoke us to take stock of what these terms are doing and what they're not. Um, yeah, so I think it's I think it's fantastically exciting, and um, I hope people will I hope people will investigate more. I mean, Do you I, really I, think UNESCO is post dramatic? I mean, I can see no, things for Beckett, but no, I, I I don't. I mean, the UNESCO I know is within the kind of dramatic framework. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't think maybe, of, of yeah, UNESCO as post dramatic. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Harvey. <laughs> no, I, I would say that I think what I find exciting about this uh, this new book is that it seems to be heralding um, you know in a more sort of popular and by popular I mean just reaching more and more people within our field a return of an intellectual discourse you know around the, you know the theory uh, that undergirds and creates um, uh, you know, theater and performance you know and I and just as a graduate student, in the when, when was I grad student, 1990s, <laughs> you know, like the, I, I saw that, you know, there was this moment of a rich uh, and dense uh, and really exciting uh, critical discourse and theoretical discourse around the arts that, were, that was happening. And then over the course of, of a decade or so, it became uh, less mainstream. Uh, and to actually return to this level of actually thinking, um, you know, about the capacity, you know, of of the arts, you know, to intervene in these ways, to actually, you know, uh, find and, and resuscitate um, an intellectual tradition, um, you know, and to, to bring that to the present, you know, is a worthwhile endeavor because I think there was a point in which we might have felt uh, as a field uh, that, you know, the sort of the intellectual heft of, of some of the uh, work and writing in the area of theater scholarship um, was leaning more toward um, sort of a light criticism, sort of a lighter cultural criticism, rather than sort of the deeper engagement with these um, traditions and forms. Hmm. Yeah, there, there does seem to be a kind of, I, um, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, Harvey, but there's a, there's a way that they're picking up the thread of a, of Marxist criticism in these categories. So the sort of main two points that they're making, that editors are making in this introductory essay is that one, they, they don't believe that Lehman was a historical. In fact, Lehman claims that post-dramatic theater emerges in conjunction with um, transformation in communication patterns and technology. I think what we would think of as mediatization or the sort of proliferation of new information technologies. Um, they argue that they, they attempt to go beyond Lehman by arguing that at the same time, there are macroeconomic factors that are changing the world. So deindustrialization, market globalization, the rise of big finance, they point to as being other simultaneous factors that are you know, more along the lines of a kind of mode of production analysis as opposed to just a technological um, uh, paradigm shift that's driving this. And then the other big assertion they make, which is related, is that form in theater is in a kind of reciprocally generative relationship with social forms or social mediation. So they say that, you know, artistic creations receive their forms in certain ways from institutions that produce them. And I, I think they are in mind of funding agencies and, and theater organizations and companies. Um, but then also that 
theatrical social formations become diffused into the social order, both through what they call social mediations, or I guess patterns of production and consumption that are shaped by theater, and also, and they're borrowing from uh, Lauren uh, Lauren Berlant in this argument that that aesthetic forms in general, including theater, create this kind of terrain on which history is lived and experienced. So there's a kind of almost a kind of like infinity loop type uh, intellectual gesture about the way that theatrical form and social forms are interrelated and mutually generative. That I think is, these are new arguments that they're adding into an older debate about what post-dramatic theater is, um, which I thought was really interesting. But but it's also refreshing in that, you know, to to actually have a community talking about formalism and what it means in the 21st century, right? Um, Yeah. Applied to this set of live performances. Um, I think that's refreshing, right? You know, and then to use that as a means to actually go back and look at sort of the new criticism debates and also some of the backlash, uh, you know, to you know to you know to resurrect uh, and to move forward this idea of um, not necessarily a new way of thinking about live performance, but one that has been sort of um, you know sort of shelved, shelved for a stretch. You know, so that's that's the part that I find refreshing, and it kind of reminds me of. Uh, sort of an earlier moment of critical discourse that existed, you know, really for me coming out of film criticism initially, you know, in that area, um, you know, but then it sort of had a a brief life and performance and then it went away. So it's good for it to come back. That's interesting. Sarah, I I always imagine that that Lehman and post-dramatic theater is more in the realm of kind of mediatized performance and performance art areas of, of, art making that I think you're more familiar with. I have only read excerpts of Lehman because it just isn't, it doesn't pertain to my research as much, but is, is Lehman sort of a big, I don't know, kind of ubiquitous term or a kind of, um, I don't know, overburdened, is, is post-dramatic theater in your mind a kind of overburdened concept in the study of contemporary theater? Well, you know, I mean, it's when, the, when that book came out, um, you know, it became the kind of text that uh, become super generative both for all the ways in which people begin to use it and then all the arguments against it, right? So I'd say there were, you know, several years starting in Europe before the English translation was published um, and and then here where it was like almost, you know, uh, required that you invoke the term and then critique the term and um, and it kind of, so it's, 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 I feel like now we've gotten to a point where we have kind of worked through that enough that it, we can kind of come back to it and look at what the what the idea does independently of what Lehman is 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 arguing for in in that kind of in that kind of outline and also think through um, some of the the conclusions about technologies and their impacts and their situated um, uh, their situation within other historical socio- sociological and and uh, economic trends as you're as you were pointing out panel so I think it's mm-hmm. it feels like the right book at the right time and I I, I I share Harvey's enthusiasm for kind of welcoming the argument right now yeah it got me thinking about form and genre as well um, the I've always thought of the 18th century creation of drama bourgeois or what we think of now as drama as being a kind of generic hybrid that's the way it's taught usually in in 18th century theater studies but this notion that um peter zondi claims that the formal analog of that generic uh invention is dialogue right that the dialogue is the formal um core of 
drama. It's it's fascinating and it's interesting to think about what the other formal parameters are around theater. Part of the issue, part of the perennial reason there's a theater and performance studies field, I think, is that we're always we're always inclined to explore from different angles this question of what the seam is, what the sort of seal is around art. And with theater and performance, it's long been known that the 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 closer you get to defining the formal limitations of it, the closer you are to just describing lived experience, right? Um, so what are the what are the ways that we seal off an artistic creation of a, a fictional creation? Um, it's a fascinating question. It's one that's endlessly generative, and this is a really great contribution to it. That's kind of a nice segment to to the other article too, right? I mean, because because yeah. the Kelvy starts with uh, with you know, reference to Bert O'State's, you know, Great Reckonings and um, in Little Rooms and and some of the same questions around how does one in the context of of, uh, of an actor um, uh, with disabilities or or even one who identifies as a disabled person uh, tease out the distinction between uh, performance and lived experience and how that manifests in, in certain kinds of actor training, which is itself about playing with some of these these boundaries. So it's an interesting tie-in yeah. between these two between the two topics also. I agree. I, I couldn't have put it better myself, Sarah. So why don't we <laughs> why don't we move it on? <laughs> why don't we why don't we talk about Patrick's article? This um, the the article's in the Spring Theater Journal. It's entitled The Disabled Actor Prepares Stanislavski Disability and Work at the National Theater Workshop of the Handicapped. Um, I'm interested to know what you guys think, but I'll just uh, sum it up as basic as as tidily as I can, um, the central kind of research object of this article is the a curricular manual for the national workshop national theater workshop of the handicapped, um, a manual written by Richard Curry, who was an actor with a disability who aspired to train people with disabilities for the professional theater. Um, and so McKelvey dives into this manual and and sort of ends up finding very profound sympathies between that very that rather narrowly conceived project of actor training and the expansion of emotional labor in the post-industrial US economy and in between those two phenomena Kel McKelvey finds Stanislavski right um Stanislavski in actor training um was you know, it served Curry's attempts to understand disabilities as the preconditions of a certain kind of authenticity and acting. But uh, McKelvey also points out that um, uh, following Arlie Hochschild's book, The Managed Heart, that Stanislavskian um, psychological terms have also been used to explain um, affective labor, the kind of labor in post-industrial economies that kind of blurs the line between private line between private life and public work um, and not being content to make that connection McKelvey goes on to say that actually there's the potential for a kind of radical anti-work politics in the ambiguities that um, the Stanislavskian framework uh, injects into um, the theories of acting that um, these these people with disabilities were encouraged to use. Um, and so it's a fascinatingly complex article. Uh, Harvey, why don't you, did, did you have takes on this or questions that, that you wanted to, to bring up having read it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a series of uh, just brilliant moves made by Patrick McKelvey 
here in which you know, looking at, for example, uh, the role of seatedness, right? This idea of the, the, the body, the actor's body uh, in a chair, right? Which we know from um, scholarship specifically that sort of highlights and pulls from different aspects of an action repair looms large in our critical discourse around Stanislavski and how that serves as a, um, a, a, a condensing, you know, sort of way of being a way of thinking in a default way of disability, right? You know, um, you know, in terms of it's that not still body, but that seated body that then you know serves as the uh, the through line that connects, um, you know, sort of seeing difficulties, hearing difficulties, movement difficulties, and that itself is its own problematic limiting factor, according to McKelvey, um, mm -hmm. and and how you know this effort to sort of frame the seated body, you know, to highlight disabilities is 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 also part of a larger conversation about work, right? You know, and and how there's this tension and a conversation that exists. Uh, in which labor is always kind of assumed uh, um, and presumed, and, and in some ways, the possibility of labor is imagined as not being available, you know, within uh, Stanislavski's imagining of the whole body of the actor. You know, so there's a series of just brilliant moves here in terms of how um, even uh, within the work of the National Theater Workshop of the Handicapped. Um, you know, the effort to create opportunities then, you know, leads itself into a conversation about laboring bodies and the possibility and availability of work uh, within, this, within the realm of the performing, art, performing arts. Uh, so it's just a, it's a smart move that sort of uh, shifts across time. It brings together some, in some ways, uh, one would imagine a distance, unlikely parallel, um, unlikely sources to be parallel, uh, but they work really well together. So well done, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, the, the image of the chair is a really interesting one in theater studies in general, and and McKelvey uses it in a super sophisticated way. Sarah, I'm curious to know what um, what you picked up on in this article. Um, so I, you know, without without taking anything away from from what you've you've both highlighted, I also found his discussion of sightedness and the mm -hmm. question of of um, disability um, as authenticity. Uh, to be a really provocative um, part of the part of the argument, in particular the the what he identifies as a as a phobia of non-sightedness. So this this anxiety about about what not seeing or not being able to see well, or the language of being blinded, right, like by spotlights or or you know not seeing, and and you know, and it prompts a, a real question once you kind of take these claims and, and arguments seriously and then sort of reflect on one's own training and think about the, the training and the environments that, that you perpetuate. You know, one of the things I think that particularly sort of doing work in theater but also in media studies, the, the assumption of sight as paramount and all of the metaphors that we have uh, for, for knowledge that are directly linked to sight, right? So, you know, expressing a keen insight or you know, we just talked about like close reading and the sort of presumptions of what that looks like. Um, you know, the ways in which we we think about like investigations or you know inquiries and, and the, the 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 language and of and the metaphors of in and deep and close and attention that that a lot of the time have to do with proximity to one's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and how close you are and how and how you know penetrative the gaze and how important where you focus your eyes are and connecting with your partner through right eyes and, and all of these things anyway so I was really um, you know uh, I was really provoked by that and also just struck with how um, how profoundly 
deep some of those questions are and then the and then the you know it's like so what what and it, it you know reading McKelvey it sort of confronted me with like oh so what is because he links that of course then to the idea of emotional realism mm -hmm. um and and connection and so the the link of authenticity and and this idea of Stanislavski that you know the performance is actually within the body and that in some ways the training is about creating a, a supple conduit in and through the body to translate the sight of the performance, which is, a, a, you know, unseen, um, to transfer that through the body as conduit so that it can be visible from outside. And there again, there are certain assumptions about what bodies are and can do. And what he mm -hmm. highlights is the kind of compulsory non-disabledness of the actor's body. But also to think about, like again, vision presumptive both on the on the part of the um, uh, performer, but also presumptive on the part of the audience, right? That there is mm -hmm. something that can be seen and attended to, and and visual, you know, visualized, and and it just it was I was really sort of kind of once you start thinking about it, kind of overwhelmed by that, and and it really struck for me this and i i i think this is part of what McKelvey is after a, a kind of radical rethinking of of some of our kind of core terminologies and um and ideas about what we think we're doing when we're training training actors mm -hmm. um and if i could just be allowed one more weird little bit that that i sort of took and i don't, I don't know that McKelvey is intending this at all but for me it also then returned to this whole question of um the specialness of live theater versus media and and how often that gets articulated as something that is not purely visual right it's a it's a yeah, it's yeah. a sense in the room and a feeling um mm -hmm. and a presence that that isn't because you know and then people distinguish that from from film which is like hypersight right or mm -hmm. because of Eratops, the kino eye and so it, it, it there's a there's also seems to be like a kind of interesting space there in what happens, what we what we think is happening in 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 the in co-presence and in the room, with 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 bodies as sensing beyond mm -hmm. sight, and yet so much of our terminology and language is caught up in in, in visuality. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a lot there, Sarah. I'm gonna leave forgive the, me. I've... I'm gonna leave the no. <laughs> I'm gonna leave the live bit mediated thing to the side because I. Fair. I'm not going to get drawn into this, um, but I think you're totally right on that point. But there is something really, there's something fascinating and kind of, I guess I, irony would be the right term for it, about the way that there's a kind of cult of the perfectibility or the the capacities of the body that belongs to this style of actor training. And not just this, but I think other areas of um, 20th century actor training. I don't remember if it was Meyerhold or like Vaktangoff. It, it was There was some other actor trainer, acting um, director and, and actor in the early 20th century who, you know, would forbid actors from smoking. And there's this sense, it was certainly in Meyerhold and, and biomechanics, there's this sense that the actor should be a gymnast and should be hyper capable. Um, and I think that that has filtered into the culture of a lot of actor training. You're supposed to take care of yourself. You're supposed to get sleep. You're supposed to exercise. You're supposed to be you know, sort of physically super capable so that you can meet the psychological and the physical demands of acting. And of course, that's ableist. Um, but it also is beyond that. It's also this kind of it, it raises this curious question of of what you know, why do we why do we think that actors in order to perform or needed to do this kind of work ought to be physically perfect or physically developed? And in, an, in a post-industrial moment when it's more about affective labor um, and 
you know, I don't know, representing feeling, those things do have a physical aptitude and capacity that need to be needs to be tapped. But um, emotional labor is not the same type of doesn't require the same type of body that um, physical or industrial labor does. Um, so it raises all sorts of curious questions in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I was trying to sort of map out um, and connect this with some conversations I often have around around race, you know, in theater, uh, and you know, and you know, trying to identify how you know, like the, the experience of the individual actor, the individuated actor, is often. Um, uh, you know, sort of tied into some sort of subjective experience, you know, um, you know, of being vetted, of being sort of blocked by someone else, right? Because we know that theater itself is not uh, a meritocracy, right? In terms of in the professional world and, and the working life of an actor, um, you know, that, you know, no matter how well-trained you are, people make choices based upon, you know, how you look, um, what they think you can or can't do. Um, you know, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking that, you know, sort of the subtext here in some ways that, um, you know, to create a form of training, you know, with the assumption that it can lead to work, right? And then how once you do that, um, a body may still be deemed not employable despite having a high level of artistic training and excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the things we want from our actors? Yeah. You know, what do we want them to look you like? Know, but, but I think the question is like, is, and this is, this is, the, this is the problematic part of this, uh, the, the shift, this is why this is a great, article is like what do we think about that when we zoom out of it right so we're not talking about the actor in an abstracted way in terms of the ability to uh you know relay an effective uh create an effective response within uh an an audience uh, goer you know but then all of a sudden you know there is a sense you know in a a formalist way (laughs) you know of, of creating a stage picture right which we know that language has been used to deny opportunities to a whole lot of people across time uh, but but we still often sort of have that sense of of the uh, for lack of a better word the integrity of the picture you know which uh, disallows difference and and often you know does not create space for uh, various forms of ability. I'll tag on one more thing, which takes us back to the chair um, <laughs> in uh, in Husserl Edmund Husserl's uh, notes on theater, which were published with his um, musings on fantasy, image, consciousness, and memory, he 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 defines different imita- imitative arts, painting and sculpture, and then he goes to theater, which is the most like life because it's three dimensional and dynamic, et cetera, et cetera. And he tries to come up with a kind of way of defining the difference between staged and non-staged uh, phenomena. And he uses the example of a chair, which, as um, you know, McKelvey points out, has always—it's actually been a hallmark of realism, dramatic realism, since the 18th century. Diderot was arguing that, and the, and the Comédie Française, the actors should be able to sit down, which they never did. Um, but he, Husserl says that an actor will on stage will use a real chair and he will bend his knees and adjust his weight and contort his body to to rest on the chair but he will not take a seat and who knows what that is in the original german but the you know the sort of point is that there's not <laughs> that there's a that there's a phenomenology of of the way we interact with a chair which might be physically identical 
when we're doing it on stage in a role. But if you're an actor on stage and you sit in a chair, you're not really taking a seat. Never do it. Which never take no, a seat. No, because <laughs> no, you're working, right? And if you're working, you shouldn't be taking a seat. Well, you're doing any, both, right? That's the that's that's the the whole thing that that at least as I understood it, that McKelvey is pointing towards, right? Like you're working and not you're resting and not you know, and that's why this like idea of the of the double you know the binocular vision of of, of theaters you know, indeterminate status is so important here for the undoing of work and, and why so many, like so much of the, of the language requires uh, a kind of counterpoint in and as you're making it, right? That, that like no, no, very few statements can kind of hold their own in and as one exclusive thing in this domain. Mm-hmm. Finally, listeners, we wanted to check in on an ongoing uh, controversy on Twitter about the uses and abuses of the term performativity. This is thanks largely to Aaron Thomas, um, but also Joy Brooke Fairfield um, and other uh, uh, participants on Twitter have been, uh, I don't know, voicing concern, kvetching, um, uh, making more or less of a, uh, an issue out of the fact that even in theater and performance studies, even in scholar, even in scholarly works, people overuse or promiscuously use the word performative. Um, this has boiled down to, and I'll, we'll link to the Twitter thread on the website, but this has boiled down to an interesting discussion involving uh, Kellen Hawksworth, uh, Chris Grobe has, has piped in, um, um, Alex Ripp um, has, has contributed. So I guess the question is, what does it mean that the term performative has taken on its own sort of unwieldy trajectory, and should we care? Um, Sarah, what do you think? Okay, so I, at the risk of, of completely destroying whatever professional credibility I have in the field, um, I, I, I'm going to, to pose this, and, and, and again, and I'm, going to, and I'm also going to do this and run, so, because I, I'm going to be late to a meeting if I don't, if I don't dash in a few minutes. But my, so I've, I've been following along with this on Twitter, and, um, and the crux as I understand it is that, you know, that, that basically people want to use performative as an adjective form of performance as opposed to a kind of layered and nuanced theoretical term in which something is, uh, becomes itself through repeated iterations, right? Um, and I guess for me, I don't quite get what the big deal is. Like, like we use words in different ways all the time and we contextualize them so that our, our audience knows how we're using it. And it's not quite clear to me what is so offensive about using the word as long as you're being clear. <laughs> and the example that I, I, I came up with, and again, this is where I lose all credibility. So, you know, you can call me a formalist and kick me out. Um, formalist out. That's right, that's right. Um, formalist trash. Exactly, I'm formalist trash. That's, that's how I'm gonna get a t-shirt. <laughs> um, sort of proclaims that but the the um it, you know it's it's the one that came to me is like the word blue right like like obviously like in if you're t if you're invoking this in a in an art historical context right or in a, like a, in about color theory right blue is a particular thing but i don't see people getting very upset that people use it when they want to when they think they're feeling sad um or you know i mean like words migrate and they have histories mm -hmm. and they change and i guess i'm I'm reluctant to hold on to particular right. ideas, particularly as the as the Twitter feed has sort of noted that other adjectival forms of 
theater and, and, and performance and references tend to be um, pejorative, right? Mm -hmm. Showy, melodramatic, et cetera. So, so that's, those, that's, that's, those are my thoughts. And, All right. and now you can, I will, I will listen to the podcast later the, to figure out why I'm wrong. The gauntlet has been thrown down. I think I will, I'm happy to, I want to hear what Harvey thinks. And then I will, I will take on Aaron Thomas's point of view uh, as best I can to explain the objection. Um, but Sarah, thank you. And uh, Sarah, you've pre-recorded your draft, so we'll hear from you later in the episode. But thank you for being with us. Good luck with your meetings. Thank you very much. See y'all. Bye-bye. So Harvey, to you next. <laughs> um, is it okay to use performative as a synonym for theatrical or showy or stagey? I think so. I, I completely agree with Sarah. Um, I, in, in a way, I'm, I'm reminded of our previous podcast on was it zombie tests, zombie texts, uh, or was yes, it yeah, yeah. ghost tests? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah zombie texts. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things where, as a as a discourse and as a discipline, you know, I, I worry about us, you know, allowing um, a a single word to sort of ossify to the point where it sort of loses its ability to be flexible and applicable to, in the present day. Um, mm -hmm. Especially if you think about our, our conversation we just had around formalism as well. You know, so I think we need to be able to breathe new life into uh, these critical con, uh, concepts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, so that's, my, that's my take on yeah. it. I think, it's, I think it's reasonable. I think I understand, though, where um, the, the performativity purists are coming from, which is that, and I'll say this because I have, in writing a book review, um, dinged a, a colleague for using the word performative in this way without, I think, without, you know, acknowledging or, or discussing any theory of performativity proper. So it performativity has a kind of field-specific technical meaning deriving from J.L. Austin. We're very familiar with it. And, um, you know, I think the adaptation of that out of the strictly linguistic and sort of speech act context into gender performativity or identity performativity, it's familiar to all of us. So I think when you're trained in our field and you get a good handle on those meanings, you realize that it's a really distinctive concept. And when you hear it sort of slide into being a synonym for showy or histrionic, et cetera, it like, it gets your attention. It feels wrong. Right. Um, but I think to me, this is, I, I think, it's the type of thing where I think Professor Thomas and myself and others who find it irritating when people, in our view, misuse the term. I think we're going to have to get over it because, as as Sarah points out, language evolves. The the boat has left the harbor. Like there's not we're not going to convince you know the the millions and millions of literate people who use the word performative that they're doing it wrong and they should sit down and read J.L. Austin again. Like. It's it's a sign that the concept has gotten into the you know uh, zeitgeist enough that people are familiar with it, but you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube on it. And as you point out, it will take on other meanings, and there will be a kind of living and evolving um, sense to it. Um, but I think it's interesting actually to look at the different ways it gets misused. There's the kind of syn there's the synonym of it being theatrical or showy. I've also seen performative me uh, used uh, in sort of distinction to um, textual or scripted. So I've, 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 I've read 
scholars talking about the sort of you know dramatic text of a play versus the performative elements of the play which is i think a distinct kind of um innovation on the term um and then there's the commonplace of like the performance of this the performance of that so like my performance of masculinity or my performance of solidarity or or whatever um which i don't think is actually a mis a misapplication actually now i'm using Austinian terminology to <laughs> taxonomize the errors of performativity, which is really, I got to pull the reins back on this. Um, but I guess the only other point that I would make was that I think, you know, in this Twitter thread, um, I forget who it is. Maybe it's Kellen Hawksworth says that we need like a kind of adjectival form of performance. But I don't think that's possible because I don't think performance is actually a coherent concept. Like, I don't know what performancy means. I think I know what I know what theatrical means. I mean, I, I would say that um, if I were to take this in two possibly different ways, they could be related. We'll see. Uh, but 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 one of them is I'm always inspired by the work of Rebecca Schneider uh, in terms of the power of 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 sort of slippery theory, right? Where mm-hmm. a language that sort of slides and overlaps uh, with one another, and then it's it's through that. A layering and through that um, um, mashup in a way that you, you get new revelations you know so I like the idea that you know in the overlap that exists between the performative uh, and this thing that might be you know performancey or whatever you might want to call it uh, it opens up a field of possibility where language meets the body uh, and creates a new way of thinking uh, and the mm-hmm. fact that it's it's on a spectrum in which you're trying to figure out how much of it is linguistic and verbal and how much of it is embodied and practical um, you know is, is 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 worthwhile right and the second thing i want to say is that you know it's helpful you know to recall that when judith butler was you know writing these sort of experimental test um, articles you know in this way you know she went to theater journal right uh, and and mm-hmm. and so she was thinking about embodiment even while talking about the linguistic and the rhetorical so um, totally. I think that there's space for us to um, fantastic um, Harvey let's let that be the last word on that um, Sarah pre-recorded her draft before she left um, listeners you can hear that now Sarah, what is your draft for this edition? So my draft today comes, um, is not actually my own. It comes from um, Jason Woodworth Ho, who is a PhD um, MFA Dramatic Media and Performance Studies student at the University of Georgia. Um, and I met uh, Jason last summer uh, when he was uh, working on the digital um, uh, technologies in theater and performance studies, um, NEH Institute with um, David Saltz and I. And um, anyway, and after our last episode, um, during my, my many rants on Heidi, um, he, he brought this to my attention and, and, um, and I did not know of this. So I'm, I'm in, in grateful to hear, which is that he, um, uh, he, he wanted to assure me that some boys were given Heidi to read, I, presumably him, but he <laughs> remembers it best because apparently in 1968, the movie Heidi came on television <laughs> and cut off the end of an incredibly close but very long Jets Raiders game. And that this game became known as the Heidi game. (laughs) Thousands of football fans were dismayed to have a very, uh, uh, um, and in fact, there there is a whole YouTube 
um, uh, clip that you can watch that's really hilarious of, of the end of the game with, with like this very critical moment in the game and the suspense and, and is now interrupted by Heidi. And so it is this kind of like, you know, gender performance clash, sports clash. Anyway, so so that is my draft. And I just want to say thank you to Jason for, for, for alerting me to this. And um, we'll put we'll put a link to the, the YouTube clip um, uh, on our website. So that's my Fair. that's my draft for the week. Happy end of the semester, everyone. And now, Harvey, what's your draft for this edition? <laughs> um, yeah, my draft is about uh, Quincy Jones. Uh, you know, inspired by Beyonce's Homecoming. You know, I then decided to uh, spend more time on Netflix than I probably should, and <laughs> uh, and wanting more sort of deep, sophisticated, uh, you know, uh, soul-stirring uh, engagements with black culture. Uh, and I stumbled across Rashida Jones, uh, the actress, and Quincy Jones' daughter documentary Quincy, and. That guy lived an extraordinary life. Is the best documentary ever? No, but he's he's he moves throughout the 20th century and 21st century like no one else. Uh, and those intersections he has, whether it's with Ray Charles uh, to Frank Sinatra to Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, you sort of name your list of prominent figures across the century, and he has some meaningful connection with all of them. Uh, and it's and it's when we think about transformative individuals whose uh, become giants across a century. Uh, it's hard to actually imagine people who are alive today. Uh, and you know, watching that documentary really made me realize that uh, in the way that we often write about sort of past figures and their influence in terms of creating a movement, uh, we have people around us today who are doing that quite actively. That's fantastic. I want to watch that because I've been aware of his musical career, but it, but he's as prevalent and influential behind the scenes or more so, right? I mean, he's been a producer, um, uh, and a producer, you know, songwriter, band leader, yeah. uh, film composer, like so many things. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'll check that out. Um, my draft is about alt ac education. Um, I have been thinking about this um, a lot this year, partly because in um, our department here, performing arts at Washington University, we're starting to increase our communications classes, our public speaking classes offerings. And um, we got a grant to develop a graduate level embodied communication class under an ALT-AC curricular development initiative that the um, Center for the Humanities here is administering. So basically, we're going to make a 500 level um, public speaking class that's oriented towards graduate students. It'll have a podcasting unit. It'll have, you know, sort of Skype interviews and how you present your research in person. And all this is coming from this initiative, which is saying, we know that PhD students are having trouble finding professorship jobs. We know that many of them are going to need to train for other careers. Can we offer curricular offerings that help that? Um, and then you know, I've been working on that and thinking on that. And then there was this article in the Chronicle last week called A Moral Stain on the Profession. This is by Daniel Bessner and Michael Brenes. And it is in the sort of genre of the Chronicle's kind of polemic essay. But it is a condemnation of alt-ac initiatives, specifically within the field of history. Um, and a sort of, you know, j'accuse piece about um, the way that, you know, the, professional historian or the professional association of historians is embracing alt act training as a kind of remedy for the really bad situation in their job market and how they should be doing other things so it's it's been on my mind i'm not uh, you know i i'm i think that 
we as as graduate faculty need to think about training our students to give them versatility in the 20th 21st century market uh, job market um, but it's also a this article is a sort of bracing reminder that there are structural facts underneath this crisis that also need to be addressed um, so I'm thinking about that that's good Thank you. Um, Sarah has taken her leave. We thank her in absentia. Harvey, thank you, as always, for for joining the recording. Um, And listeners, um, thank you so much for downloading and streaming, and we will have more podcasts for you soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.